Well, thank you, Ryan, and, and thank you, Pastor Stephen, and our worship team, audio team, tech team. They are here so early in the mornings to be able to help prepare us, to lead us in this time of worship together. So now as we open our words, as you've watched television shows, oftentimes between the seasons, or at least some even between the episodes, there will be this little helpful reminder of what happened in the previous episode or the previous season that catches us up to speed. It says, this is what happened, this is the, the latest, so it brings us up to the point of where the action is about to begin, unless we possibly forget a portion of what already took place. Now, last week, we had the genealogy that we examined, and so what Moses does for us, like a good TV producer, is he reminds us, he catches us up, and so for many of you that are uh, coming back to gather with us, whether you're students or, or newer to Grace Bible, you may be wondering, well, what's happened thus far in Exodus? And this is a good Sunday to be here because Moses catches us up. He gives us the summary of the first six chapters that have taken place, and then he gives us insight into this first clash of the titans that takes place. So, as we have our Bibles, we want to observe a reminder of what has happened up to this point. I've summarized it for us in four different ways, and I asked the question, Moses, can you give us a quick recap of what happened so far? And we see this in 628 through chapter 7, verse 7. Now, we as a church, uh, and we with our technologies and the incredible blessings that God has given us, we have access to God's Word. And I want to tell you this morning, if you don't own a Bible, there's a pewback Bible in the front of the pew in front of you. We'd encourage you, if you commit to reading it, we encourage you to take that as a gift from our church body to you this morning. But we have so much access to God's written Word. It's absolutely tremendous. But in, the, in this time, and as Moses is writing, it was certainly not that accessible. So even though you had many people, the population, uh, particularly of the Hebrews that could read, there were many more that would hear it read. So imagine you're a listener and you just heard the genealogy, all the names that were mentioned. What Moses does for us then, which is helpful for the listener, is he catches us up on what's happened to this point to be able to lead us into the new plot information. So we asked Moses the question, can you give us a quick recap? And he's so kind to do so for us. In verse 28 and 29, we're reminded of the divine name of the Lord. You can write down Exodus 3 beside that if you're a note-taking person. The divine name in verse 28, on the day when the Lord, and in our English translations, we'll see that all capitalized, L-O-R-D, which is a reminder of this divine name of God, pronounced Yahweh by many today, that he's the one that meets with Moses, which means for Moses that he is the Lord's ambassador. A God didn't simply meet with Moses, but the one true God. Now, this can be confounding at first because the people of the one true God, the one from whom he made the covenant, Abraham, the one that the seed was going to come, as we discussed last week, they're presently in captivity in Egypt, a nation with many gods. And the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he views himself as a god, as a representation of the powerful gods of Egypt, channeling in him these powers there's this reminder before the, the drama really begins to take off that He is the one true God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. It's in His name, this encounter with Moses, that Moses will go out as this ambassador, the one who is, I caused to be because I caused to be. That's who Moses is to say sent him. He comes in the authority, the name of the Lord. Just like last week when we saw that baptism, 
Baptism was a reminder. When we say baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's in the authority of the Lord that that person is giving a declaration of allegiance and immersed into. Moses goes and declared allegiance and authority of the one who is self-sustaining and almighty, the Lord God Himself. In every interaction just about that we can think of that the Lord has with someone, it leads to this second component, a commissioning. A commissioning. So as we work through Exodus thus far, we've seen that God didn't simply gather with Moses on Mount Sinai that He would serve Him and have this special interaction. But the interaction leads to mission. It leads to commissioning. So we see first the divine name, and then, verse 29, Moses' commissioning. Moses' commissioning. The Lord didn't just meet with Moses. He met with Moses that He would commission Moses. And this is the pattern in Scripture. The people that know the Lord are commissioned by the Lord. Now, mission itself is an act of worship. We're living sacrifices. Those of us that, that know Christ, that have turned from sin and placed our trust in Christ. We live our lives now in mission to the Lord. All of our time, our talent, and treasure, it's His. We're, we're servants of the Lord God. So all of these things lead forward to service. That's what Moses is to do. He has a commissioning. So he meets the Lord at Mount Sinai, or I should say the Lord meets him at Mount Sinai, and this bush that will not be consumed, but he's commissioned, and the Lord tells him that you will be successful in leading my people back here that they may be, worship me in this spot. Worship and, and experience with the Lord leads itself to commission and mission that continues on in greater worship. So Moses lives his life as a servant of the Lord. Service. Service. Now, if you've been here any time, you've heard us talk about our discipleship, core values, word, worship, service, family. So I have a question for you. If you're a part of any, almost any organization today, service is probably a core value as well. In the Rotary Club, service above self is regularly given. Matter of fact, many of your businesses, perhaps the university, I should have checked, but probably has service as a core value. Servant leadership is the key buzzwords of leadership over the last four decades. So the question is, what's the difference between Grace Bible's service and Rotary's or any other, other number of non-for-profit or service organizations? What's the difference? The difference is what we see here with Moses and the magicians. If we were to ask Moses, what's a defining component of your life as an ambassador of God, a deliverer, it's service. He lives his life in service. Remember, that's part of the commission. That's what the Lord told him. You will go where I tell you to go. You will say what I tell you to say. Don't worry. You're going to serve me. And if we were to interview one of the magicians or the sorcerers or the wise men of Pharaoh, and we were to ask him, what's your mission? What's your core values? They would have said service. The same word. The difference is that those wise men served Pharaoh and served their gods. Moses served the one true God. Service, you see, is defined by the one that we serve. We were all made for service. We were made to worship and to serve and to rest in the Creator God. The one that we move and live and have our being. But there's only one true God. This becomes the encapsulating commission of all the apostles we see in the New Testament. They're commissioned, they're sent ones of God. They've seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
Him crucified, their hope of glory. They're commissioned to testify of Him. And listen, this is how they refer to themselves. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1, Peter, a servant of Christ Jesus. It's not just that we, we can't take service and make it a life value any more than you can take a word like love or care. You can't make those core values to build your life or your marriage or your goals on. It's the one that we serve that matters. And we rest in what He's done and He is the understanding. He is the standard. He is the fuel. He's the one that we serve in all that we do. And that is Good news. That's why it's good news. Because the Lord has done it. And now we get to serve Him, deployed, living on mission. All through Scripture, we see so many different commissionings. Of course, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to look over to Luke chapter 8. I want to look at a lesser known commission that we see that Jesus gives to the Gerasene demoniac, this man that is filled with thousands of demons. This is not some idea that these people didn't know what they talked about, so they, they simply couldn't diagnose what was wrong, so they said, oh, he's got a demon. He literally had thousands of demons pulsating in his body. He could not be bound with chains as he roamed the graveyards. The people lived in terror of him. He sees Jesus who comes upon the shore and he bows before him because he knows the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, this great commission. Go therefore, he says to the disciples, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things as I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always until the end of the age. The commission that Jesus gives his disciples as he teaches them, baptizes them, and commands them to baptize and to teach others to obey all those things, it flows like a waterfall into us and all believers. This command that we have to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Learners, trainers, followers of Jesus. Students of Christ. And what we see in Luke chapter 8 is this stunning account in which right after, in, in verse 34, right after Jesus casts out these thousands of demons into these swine, listen to what happens. This once demon-possessed man sits at the feet of the Lord and notice the villager's response, the townspeople's response, and then notice his desire. And yet, the commissioning, the divine name and then the commissioning. When the herdsmen saw what had happened in Luke 8, 34, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. He was naked and out of his wrong mind and out of his mind, but now he's clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. The idea being, wait, this man Jesus is able to tame this man, this demon-possessed man with incredible powers and strength. So, Jesus got into the boat and he returned. Now look at this, 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away. He commissioned him saying, what? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. 
And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. All of this, not to to mention the very commissioning of Israel to be a blessing to the nations as they abided in the Word and the law of God. Meeting the Lord leads to mission from the Lord. This is how Moses catches us up. It doesn't stop there. So we go into verse 30. We see the divine name. We see Moses' commissioning. And then we have verse 30, Moses' insecurities as the reminder of what's taken thus far. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I was writing a catch-up of this, I would be tempted to leave this part out. I'd kind of gloss over this part if it was me. Kind of make myself look a little better. But he doesn't. He catches us up. And if you're a note-taking person, you can write down there chapter 6, verse 12. Now we've gone from chapter 3, chapter 4 and 5, now to chapter 6. It's right before the genealogy that was read last week. Right before that text. Now he reminds them of what happened. Remember, remember, Moses is so struggling because now Israel has ceased to obey him or listen to him. And so he's struggling with the commission that God has given him to go to Pharaoh. And he says, how will Pharaoh possibly listen to me? And the NIV translates this as faltering lips, which... This is a family service, and I'm a-okay with that translation today. The summary conclusion of the obstacles that Moses has is the fact that he's aware of his weakness. Can you relate to that? Moses has duck syndrome. You've heard of that saying? Duck syndrome. You look at a duck on the top of the surface, and it's gliding smooth as ice. But if you get a camera under the water, what's the duck doing? As wild as possible, pedaling its legs to stay afloat and to continue moving in that direction. Moses has done what the Lord has called him to do so far. But he can't quite forget his weakness. His weakness of his uncircumcised lips. He's he's unable to articulate the way that he wants to. And this insecurity, this weakness still plagues him. If only he'd come to the realization that Paul comes to and we know about as believers in Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord told Paul that when the Lord would not remove the weakness from him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness, Jesus tells Paul. But can you relate to this? I mean, can you relate to Moses? We're not Moses. Moses has a unique story in redemption history, giving the law and receiving the law and leading Israel out into the promised land or toward the promised land. But can you relate to Moses' awareness of his weakness? Can you relate to the desire of saying, Lord, I know that your strength is made powerful in my weakness, but it would be awesome if you would go ahead and take it away anyway before glory. Trust me, I would be so much more effective for mission if you would just take away this fear. Just take away this insecurity of mine and and watch me go. Moses is relatable, isn't he? So we're reminded of the divine name, Moses' commissioning, and and his insecurities. And then in 7, 1 through 7, we see the divine action. Divine name and divine action. Remember the comfort that Moses gets isn't simply that the Lord is going to provide Aaron, because the Lord is going to provide Aaron. He doesn't even make Moses have the awkward conversation with his big brother that he's scared and needs help. The Lord provides it for him. He provides Aaron who's excited to help. But in 7, 1 through 7, we're reminded of many of the ways that the Lord acts 
And it's the Lord's faithfulness to the commission for His glory, a glory that will spread through the nations, not only through Egypt, to show that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, really is the one true God. But also, word of God's glory will spread into the promised land. The great plagues and power of God will soften the Canaanites with the reality as they will hear rumors and words of the mighty God of the Hebrews, of these people that are of the least of people, the Lord says. That's God's kindness and His divine action. It builds encouragement. Who does the Lord choose? He appoints, in verse 7, Moses. And this is a kind of the first detail we get of the reminder of their age. Moses is 80. This is good to highlight this. Moses is 80 and Aaron is 83. As they're about to engage in this battle with Pharaoh and the best of his best. 80 and 83. Now, before you think that's old, Clint Eastwood's still making great movies and he's like 90-something, okay? He's at least making movies. I don't know if he's still making great movies, but he's making movies. The Lord would commission 163 years of experience between two brothers. The Lord sends these senior citizens to be His ambassadors. And what does this remind us? It reminds us of the same commissioning of the Lord's choosing of Israel, that they were the least of people. So as the Lord, as they're blessed before the mighty nations who are far more powerful, as the Lord blesses them and gives them the land and preserves them, it forces the nations to look and say, there's no way that's you all, that must be your God. And that's what we have here on a smaller scale, an initial scale with Moses and Aaron. There's no way anyone watching this scene is going to say, wow, it's clearly you two, you know, grumpier old men. That seems inappropriate. There's no way it's you two guys that are great. But they're not going to look at these men and think they're going to out-athlete Pharaoh. They're not going to beat them in some rhetorical battle. But why will they be victorious? Because it's the Lord's battle. It's the divine actions that will take place. So, divine name, Moses' commissioning, Moses' insecurities, and the divine action that will fill these things, which leads us and catches us up to verse 8 through 13. Now the clash of the titans begins. And in this initial clash, we learn, secondly, that the Lord sits above the battle and He holds the heart of the king in His hand. The Lord sits above the battle and He holds the heart of Pharaoh in His hand. Now, I say this not to say, don't think that this means that, that I'm trying to summarize this, to say that the Lord is apathetic to the struggles of Moses. That's not it at all. But the picture is that the Lord is so powerful and so great that it's as though He could delegate His responsibility as God to Moses, a creation, this 80-year-old man who will then delegate his responsibility as prophet to Aaron, his brother. And Aaron is the one that will do the battle with the two staffs interacting together, this staff meeting. Staff meeting? Now, I want the record to show, okay, if you looked in your bulletin, I called this sermon the staff meeting. The two staffs meet each other and he gobbles. 
And I want the record to be crystal clear that I ran that by our own staff, and they encouraged me. So, anything that you think about me, you got to think about them. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that you know that now, but you know that, and that's, you got to live with that, okay? But the Lord is so high above the battle and so sovereign and in control that notice again and again and again we see that it happens just as the Lord said it would. He's not threatened by the chaos of this world. So let's look at the first pact in verse 8 through 10, that the Lord makes Moses become like God in Aaron like Moses' prophet. This is chapter 7, verse 1 on display. When he said for us, I will make you as God to Aaron, we see it now applied exactly what he means. Moses will speak the words to Aaron. He will delegate these things. And what we're going to have is a contrast. So here's the contrast on this side. The Lord is so great and so powerful and so not threatened by Pharaoh. Again, this man that, that elevates himself as a God, that he takes Moses right here and he elevates him as though God. He takes Aaron and elevates him as though he's his prophet and, and deliverer to, to fight this battle with Pharaoh. And on this side, we have the Egyptians. Pharaoh has not been elevated by God. Pharaoh elevates himself as a God. And he acquires and assembles his wise men and his sorcerers and magicians, and he has them play the role of his deliverer. And they clash in this way. The Lord above all of the battle, holding Pharaoh's heart in his hand. That's the greatness and the power of our God, that believer we need to remember when we're shaken in the things of life. And all of us have been shaken and certainly will be shaken in the year to come of things we don't even know. But a reminder in this scene that the battle is... The Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We see three questions answered in this passage. Three questions answered in a helpful way. We ask the question, is God threatened or rattled by wicked rulers, even though we are? The answer is, no, He's not threatened. The second, we ask the question, does God use sinful, insecure people? And the answer abundantly clear is, yes, He does. Now, the third question we ask is, will the wicked rulers, will the wicked ones give an account to the judge of the universe? And the answer is, yes, they will. But the judgment of God also plays out, listen, progressively in time. Progressively in time. Pharaoh will experience the first taste of judgment here. In that, he will be humiliated. That's part of the judgment of God. The judgment of God by the plagues that we're going to see as Pastor Roman is going to begin unpacking the first one next week. The plagues, not only will Pharaoh suffer, but his people will suffer. And the judgment of God will be poured out upon them progressively until they lose their firstborn sons. The weeping and the moaning. But make no mistake, it will lead to a final judgment. And we'll look at Pharaoh as we walk through the plagues and we'll say, why can't you figure it out? Why is your heart increasingly hardened? And then by the grace of the Spirit of God, we'll be reminded, oh Lord, but by the grace of God, go myself. It's the kindness of God to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, 
That's the kindness of our God. And the danger of our God to see the Lord's working and to not soften our hearts as the day is near. That's what we see in Pharaoh's life. He demands proof and God gives him proof. And what happens? The goalposts move. And every one of us before we came to Christ were most often like that. You have family members in your life and friends in your life that will look and say, I would believe in God if I just had proof of this. But Pharaoh is an testimony to us. No, you wouldn't. You could see miracles and plagues and things you cannot explain or mimic. But unless God brings your dead heart to life, you will harden your heart against God. For you love your sin and your self-rule. But God is so gracious and merciful that though the progressive judgment of God is poured out upon Pharaoh in Egypt, forgiveness and mercy will come to those that will trust in the promises of God. Many, it says, will go out of Egypt, not just the Israelites. This is good news. Good news. So Moses and Aaron entered this gauntlet to face off with Pharaoh. And it leads us, secondly, in verse 11 through 12, we see the contrast. The Lord makes Moses become like God, and Aaron becomes like his prophet, and then Pharaoh makes himself out to be God, and his spiritual men like his prophets. Now, there is some debate here on how we should translate 11 and 12. Namely, is this three groups in Egypt, or is this two groups? So the ESV, as we've have read, and we walk through as a church body when we hear Scripture read, uh, they argue there's two groups. Uh, the translators chose to go that way, and really it can go either way, okay? But they argue that there's wise men, and the key idea of this is what? That Pharaoh has assembled his special forces. This is the Ivy League's the best of the best that he can assemble. So he gathers wise men, and he gathers sorcerers, and when we read the ESV, the New American, we read this, and it translates, and then as the magician. So it summarizes those two categories as these magicians, right? these, these workers of wonders and these workers of words. But what the NIV does, and the NRSV, the Net Bible, and others, they go ahead and take this as three groups. You've got the sorcerers, those in Egypt that are skilled in the occult, demonic type arts. And then you've got the wisest of philosophers and thinkers that he gathers, his counsel. And then he's got these magicians, these, these skilled and working Tricks of the eye that baffle. I think it's the, the latter part of that, but it doesn't really change our meaning here or understanding. But the key is they gather here for battle. And what takes place? These two men, 80 and 83, Moses has been walking around as a shepherd for 40 years. The Lord doesn't gather His best and brightest, does He? That's not an insult to Moses. But he didn't search all of Israel and find his wisest man. He didn't search all of Israel and find his most skilled magician. Instead, he appointed an 80-year-old and an 83-year-old that we can say with certainty have never turned a staff into a serpent before. So I want you to imagine this scene of these two men here, Aaron in particular, and then this 83-year-old. And then on this side, we've got this unknown number of magicians. And they've been working and training probably their entire lives in this 
craft. Maybe they got a box here, whatever it is. And so maybe this was a common trick. We don't know. But Aaron has no box, no trick. He takes his staff, throws it down, it becomes a snake. Pharaoh looks on to the battle and looks to his magicians to mimic and do the same thing, to say, okay, your God can do that, Aaron Moses. Don't worry, my God can do that too. Anything your God can do, my God can do better. And so they throw down their staffs and a bunch of snakes come out. And imagine you're the magicians watching this unfold as you watch your snakes. And then you notice as Aaron's snake begins to eat the first of the snakes. And after eating that snake, it makes its way to the next snake and begins eating it until it eats all the snakes. Can you imagine what you'd be feeling inside? Who are you accountable? You're accountable to the strongest man in the world, Pharaoh. And you just failed and got humiliated. And Pharaoh represents the gods of Egypt and a god himself. Can you imagine the, the desire to try to look like everything's okay, but in your mind to be saying, this is insane? I imagine it would be like Acts chapter 8 with Simon the sorcerer. Do you remember that account? In the New Testament, the book of Acts is this helpful history book in the New Testament, the early church. Simon the sorcerer, it says, is famous and he's known throughout all Samaria. All this region, everybody knows about him because he's working things that are blowing their minds. But then he sees what these apostles begin doing, these works of God, and he, they can't explain it. He's so amazed, it says, that he longs to purchase the Spirit from them. And judgment is spoken against him. I imagine that's how Egypt's magicians were thinking as they watched this scene unfold. And all of these things, the humiliating aspect, it leads Pharaoh to repentance and faith in Yahweh, doesn't it? No. No. Some of you nodded your head just now. Just want to make sure you're awake right now. No. Instead, what happens finally? We see in verse 13, Pharaoh thinks he rules the world, but he can't even rule his own heart. He thinks he rules the world, but he can't even rule his own heart. It says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As creation, we do aim for fruitfulness. And listen, we celebrate efficiency, don't we? We celebrate excellence. We celebrate those things. But even as creation, we recognize that the fall of man in Genesis 3, our nature is fallen. And sin has impacted us in all that we are, in our emotions, in our mind, in our will. And certainly our relationships and our soul, we're dead in sin. And one of the ways that we can judge God and one of the beauties of going through Scripture verse by verse is we're ministered to in a text like this. Because we read this text and we say, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened again? God, why are you so patient with him? We look and we say, God, wouldn't it be so much more efficient if you would just go ahead and open up the Red Sea right now and let your people go? We look at Moses and Moses' doubt and we say, God, why don't you just send an angel to lead them? We think of the holiness of God and we look at Pharaoh hardening his heart and his heart being hardened in this and we think, God, why don't you just kill him? Look what he's doing to your people. He's abusing your people.
And then at a broader scale, today we look at all of creation and we see the vastness of the universe and we know that human beings will only ever observe a, this tiny fraction of all of God's creation. And we say, God, why did you create such a gigantic cosmos by which we'll only see a tiny bit? That's not very efficient. We listen to the great commission of God to go and make disciples to all the nations and we say, God, but I've got to be honest, I'm scared and I'm a bit lazy. Why don't you just send angels to go and do all this? There's literally hundreds of millions of people that don't know about Jesus, never heard the gospel. Why don't you just send them? Send the angels. Wouldn't it be more efficient? And we look and we're reminded of this, that God's timing is not our timing, and that's a good thing. And so what ought the people of God do? To focus on the next step commissions before us to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to listen to God by His written Word, and to ask for courage to take next steps, and to understand if we don't focus on the commission before us, we will be distracted by the foolishness of this world. But God in all these things holds the heart of the King. All these things, though He's delegated to Moses' responsibility, all of these things happen exactly like the Lord said it would. He's not shaken or rattled at all in the chaos of the world. In chapter 3, verse 19, he said, But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. See, this is all happening to God's plan. His perfect and permissive will. We read in chapter 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put into your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The judgments of God that we'll see unravel still accomplish the mighty plans and glory of God. I have a question for you. Are you more powerful than Pharaoh? Just really think about that. Are you more powerful than Pharaoh? I think one of the greatest mistakes I can make in my life is to think I'm exceptional or special. That doesn't apply to me. We look at the strongest man in the world and he can't even control his own heart. Jesus comes and says to the Pharisees and says to everybody listening, unless your righteousness, trying to keep the law of God, exceeds the Pharisees, these men that were more devout than any of us in this room combined, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. And so why as believers do we gather knowing we cannot rule our hearts and knowing that our righteousness will never exceed good enough to clean our lives up? It's because Jesus Christ, Him crucified our hope of glory. Moses' confidence is in the working of God and our confidence as gathered believers is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's good news for us. This is good news for us. Perhaps you've come this morning and your, your heart is hard and you think, I just need church to put me over the top. Your heart is like Pharaoh's. You think it's a you and God joint venture. And as Ryan prayed for us a moment ago, we bring our sin to the table, not our righteous deeds. Our best and righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. 
And as we gather and we partake of the Lord's Supper as a church family, we're reminded that it's His shedding of blood, not His and ours. That's the good news that we have in this account. As we get to the Passover lamb, we'll see the shedding of the blood of the, this bloody, bloody scene at the Passover scene. And the death angel passes over. And Jesus takes the Passover and He reinstitutes it in His own name, in His own blood. That His believers will partake of in remembrance of Him. Proclaiming His glorious resurrection and make right death until He comes. We have good news because our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. And this leads us into our next steps, this understanding that some come to the table, some come to this idea of faith and Scripture and God, and they believe Galatians chapter 6. The warning. They think they are something when they are nothing before God. And in their pride, they're so hard, they think, doesn't apply to me. I might need a little help, but that's it. Friend, unless you turn from sin and trust in Christ alone, you have no hope. But if you will but trust in Christ alone, you have all hope. A certain hope in the blood of the Lamb. Come to Christ today and live. You see, as believers in Christ, that's who partakes of the Lord's Supper. We're reminded that we are made worthy because of Christ, to come to the Lord with confidence. Some come to the table and say, because I am something, but they're nothing. They miss it. Others will come thinking they are nothing. And because they're nothing, because of something they've done or, listen, been done to them, they think the Lord would want nothing to do with them. Each is a tragic mistake. God loves you so much. That sinner, if you will but believe in Christ, you have forgiveness. That's why it's called gospel, good news, a declaration of the victory of Christ. The Lamb who was slain and yet stands. That's why we have good news. And so, baptism is this declaration of allegiance that you have in Jesus. This union with Christ as we saw practiced last week in Aaliyah's story. You believe in Jesus Christ, His righteous life and His make-right death, that He bore your sins on His body on the cross, was buried, defeated death, and rose again from the grave. And those who proclaim their trust in Christ alone, they live lives in newness of life for His glory. If you've not been baptized, you'll see information in your bulletin. Sign up for baptism class next Sunday at 1045. Or you fill a Connect card out this day. Come, we'll have ministry leaders up here after service. You share that with us this day that you may partake in the gift of baptism that the Lord gives us as believers in Christ. And you'll see the second component, that the Lord's Supper is a gift to the body of Christ, that it nourishes, it builds our faith, and it celebrates our union with Christ. So the Lord's Supper is only for believers. It would would be inappropriate for you if you don't know Christ, if you've not turned from sin and trusted Christ. It'd be inappropriate for you to partake of something that celebrates union with Christ if you don't yet have union with Christ. But the second component of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate as believers is we have union with one another. That's the same blood of the Lamb that's sacrificed and makes us right. It's His broken body. It's His sinless blood. 
And so if you don't yet know Christ, next week, when we, next month when we partake, last Sunday of the month, we invite you, come to Christ, give your life to Christ, and be nourished like we are in this communion together. And if you're a believer, I want to encourage you as well, if you have relationships that have not been reconciled together, hostility in the body, don't partake this morning. The warning that Scripture gives us is that this is a unifying meal. That's a reminder, it's a placing in proper perspective of order that we're bound in Christ together. So if there need be forgiveness that you ought to seek with another, do so. This gift that the Lord gives for the health of the body and discipline of the body is good. Amen? It's good. So as you take of the elements before you that you should have been able to, to receive at the door, we'll take open the, the bread element first. We're reminded that indeed God did become flesh. The eternal Son took on flesh. Fully God, fully man. And Paul, in giving this recount of the Lord's Supper, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This physical reminder of our union with Christ. That believer, you are forgiven. You have peace with God, not ceasefire. You have peace with God. As our union with the Lord, we have family with one another. Paul goes on and says, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Would you pray with me before we stand in song to the resurrected Lamb? Well, Lord, You are worthy of our praise. By the spotless lamb, we've been made pure. As we live a life of response to the goodness of your word that we build our lives upon, Lord, would you give us courage to walk in the good works that you prepared for each of us this week, every relationship, every conversation, Lord, would you give us boldness to with precision obey the Spirit's leading. Lord, help us to be quick to speak, quick to listen, quick to forgive, Lord, and quick to speak of You, the One that has made us whole. We give You glory and we thank You for the union that we have in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, Amen. Would you stand with me, church family, as we sing?